round two with uh, brother Daryl Babbitt all the way in Alberta. I've had you on before and it's a pleasure to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks very much, Cameron. Glad to be here. So, um, and now I, it's always one of those things you have the brain fart right when you start talking. Uh, uh, Boreas architecture. Yes. And heritage. Uh, you know, the reason I talked with you before, one of the reasons, and one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you back on the podcast is to discuss the, you know, the importance of our Masonic buildings and our Masonic temples as heritage structures, um, whether they be grand buildings like the Windsor Masonic Temple and Detroit Masonic Temple, or even, even the smaller ones, like I had the chance to visit a, a, a small, what had been a church that had been converted to a Masonic Temple when I was in Texas. I mean, all of these buildings are such an important part of our Masonic history and history of the towns in which they're located. Uh, and you as a you know, professional in this field have a lot of great insights uh, uh, into that. So I guess my, my first question for you is, you know, since we talked last, and I'll leave a link okay. up in the screen, um, you know, in, in Alberta, uh, what's been happening with kind of the Masonic temples that you're involved with and that you know about? I know you mentioned one has been rented out uh, uh, for use, which I think is great. Um, well, uh, here, so they, as lockdowns end, as people are getting out, are you finding these Masonic temples are once again being used both Masonically and by the community? Yes. Everyone, every lodge is eager to start meeting in person. Um, you had mentioned uh, the Edmonton Fringe Festival. So Acacia Hall, that's their neighborhood. They're in Strathcona, uh, the Strathcona neighborhood in Edmonton. The Fringe Festival is happening. Uh, Acacia Hall happens to be uh, a large festive hall. So it has been rented out for a theater production in the Fringe. I wasn't able to get over there this last week. Uh, Edmonton Freemasons Hall downtown uh, tends to do a lot of, of events like weddings and meetings and conferences, seminars. They had a pop-up Texas barbecue event uh, held in the parking lot in back. Uh, it was very popular. I'm hearing about it from non-Masons who attended. And yeah, one of the brethren happens to have a food truck that does Texas barbecue. So this is what he did. And I'm hearing more and more stories like that. Um, we humans are, are just wired to connect with folks. So we really want to get back and start seeing people again in person. And I think that the Masonic movement is a strong part of that. You mentioned um, that we are wired to connect with people, which is absolutely true, uh, I think. But one thing that maybe I, I had an intuitive sense of, but I've never, it, this podcast is, has made me realize more and more is, is how wired we as humans are to connect to places uh, and buildings and how um, you know we can form strong emotional attachments this is masonic or otherwise with buildings that are an important part of our life or architecturally significant um, there are several aspects to that so a, a field of study that i've come across and i'm paying quite a bit of attention to these days is the field of neuroaesthetics that our brains are wired uh, through our stem cells, through our, our survival brain, um, to recognize things of beauty. Now, perhaps this goes way back when we were mammals crawling across the earth and we had to protect ourselves from being stomped by these giant reptiles. So we found places of safety. And we have since come to realize those as places of beauty. A lot of the classical orders uh, have been formulated on those. Uh, unconscious subconsciously but that we connect with them now in terms of emotional intelligence and knowing these places that we have seen we've lived in we know that's very important that connection it's kind of like connection between people but rather this is connection from people to buildings and that's very important and you know it, i've had people on on the podcast um you know, who, who have talked about this, uh, 
I'll leave some links on, on the description. Yeah, the, there's, a, there's a scientific, um, you know, a whole field of scientific study on, I guess, neuroaesthetics, neurology, uh, and the way our brain and our minds, and then by extension, right, because how the brain responds to something is going to affect how the body responds to something. Um, uh, our I buildings. can pick a book out of my bookcase here if you want me to show it to you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, it was just here. Uh, it's a book by Steve Bass. Um, that is not where it should be on my bookcase here. Oh, here it is. Beauty, Memory, and Unity. Beauty, Memory, Unity, Steve Bass. Yep. Steve is a graduate of the Prince's School of Traditional Arts, uh, from Prince Charles. Um, and Steve is a great promoter of this idea of theory of proportion in architecture and design that we are wired for things of beauty. So um, I have to actually, reach out to Steve Bass. Maybe he'll be on the podcast. I'd love to have him. Uh, so then that brings us into, you know, the importance of preservation and, and maintaining um, these, these temples. And I say temples, but I'm trying to get out of that and say more Masonic buildings because, I mean, as you know, uh, uh, there are, in some cases, there is a Masonic temple that hosts lodges and Scottish Rite and York Rite, but there are also Scottish Rite cathedrals. There are um, uh, York Rite, um, I can't think of the word now, uh, consistories. There, there's the York Rite bodies um, shrine. There's even like in Texas, I had the chance to visit the Texas Masonic Retirement Center, which is, um, again, it's a Masonic building and I guess you could say it's a Masonic temple because there is a lodge that meets there, but its primary purpose is as a home for retired Masons and their families. Um, mm -hmm. so sometime, sometime back, I sat through a presentation from the National Trust, Heritage Canada, uh, and it was a presentation called Regeneration Works. It's based on the premise that uh, here in Canada, in I believe it was 2010, a full 37% of Canadians had absolutely no religious affiliation whatsoever. And that number was seen to go up to 50% by the year 2030. However, in the meantime, we have 27,000 buildings of faith. What's going to happen to them? Sitting through this presentation, every time they said church, going through my head, I, I kept saying Masonic building. And we may be in the very same spot. We have some absolutely incredible buildings in this country. Um, that's a testament to our movement, to our imagination, to our drive, uh, to our vision. And perhaps they're in danger of being lost. And that would really be a loss for our society if that were to happen. And uh, I'm so happy you brought up National Trust. I'll leave a link in the description to this video. Um, you know, I, I attended the National Trust conference virtually last year uh, i'm hoping to be a part of it this year again um the the funding page you know i've i've looked at it and i'm in the process of applying for several different grants um which knock on wood for things like um uh you know there's significant funds available to retrofit mm -hmm. buildings for energy savings and environmental impact to make it it's not just a matter of the certainly reducing the environmental footprint of a heritage building is important, but also, you know, that will provide significant savings in the long run for, for any building that takes part to digital ex exhibitions about the building. Like there's so much funding available. Uh, I do worry that, you know, how many Masonic temples, uh, temple boards, Masonic buildings are not looking at and taking advantage of some of these opportunities. Mm -hmm. Here in Alberta, we are blessed with um, some heritage funding. So here in Edmonton, we have a very generous bylaw for buildings that are designated municipally as historic sites. The city will uh, fund a portion of your property taxes um, over a period of, uh, I forget exactly how the bylaw reads, but it's very generous. If your building is deemed to be a municipal historic site, the province of Alberta will also recognize that. They have a funding program as well 
for municipally designated heritage sites, uh, the province also has got yet another program that's even more generously funded for sites that are deemed to be of provincial significance. I guess that goes uh, uh, the same question, only on a more provincial level, uh, you know, in Alberta or, or any mm -hmm. province, you know, how many Masonic buildings are not taking advantage of these opportunities or not applying for funding that, that's available to them, either at the city level, provincial level, or national level. Perhaps even national, right. That's an excellent point. Um, I know that because many of our buildings have been stalwarts in the community, uh, they probably have got a fair bit of municipal significance. And that's something that uh, I know I work with a variety of groups to try to determine that and put together statements of significance, as they're called, to file for um, to file for municipal or provincial designation. Um, certainly, I would uh, uh, promote that. Something else that came out of that Regeneration Works conference that the National Trust put through was the idea of finding outside uses for your building. Now, I mentioned uh, the Fringe Theater, I mentioned weddings and the pop-up barbecue over at Freemasons Hall. Those are some examples. And remember the example that was being used in the National Trust Regeneration Works Conference was the United Church in Toronto, where there was session that dealt with matters of faith. They actually put out a request for proposal from various groups who would manage their building and they looked for a 10-year pro forma that they expected uh, would break even. I was floored when I heard this. Um, that particular group, uh, I believe it had a board, uh, the winning group had a board of seven people, four of whom were from the church. So the church kept control over what was going on in the building. The other three people were groups that that church wanted to reach out to and felt that perhaps they needed some building space as well. I thought that was very far-sighted, and the idea of a, a ten-year pro forma on that—that—that that, that blew my mind. And uh, yeah, and it's such a you know, just as an exercise um, in you know thinking about these things, like like every every temple board, or you can the temple board can appoint somebody, or a building manager can appoint somebody to just look through these things and, and even think about them, like. One of, for one of the applications, we had to go through um, it's the, uh, I'm not sure actually what it stands for, the RET screen, R-E-T uh, screen program. But it's just, it makes you, uh, you know, think about things like energy consumption and usage and all the, the nuts and bolts of uh, a building and how it actually runs and operates. Um, which is something, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for even Masons, you know, at the brand new level, just starting out to, to think about when they're joining is, how the building is that you're, you know, being made a mason and actually uh, uh, operates. Have you found um, over the, the year and a half, uh, approximately, of, of being shut down, um, what was your experience in, in Alberta in terms of your Masonic buildings? Were they, you know, did, were they still well maintained? Um, I know what the buildings were there. shut down. Um, Various levels of maintenance, um, uh, certainly in a lot of smaller towns, I think a, a lot of the brethren felt a need to go in and make sure that water pipes didn't freeze and, and that things were kept clean and whatnot. Um, otherwise, um, uh, see, I know Freemasons Hall simply locked everyone out. Uh, Acacia Hall, I'm not sure went on what went on there. Um, I do know that many of the brethren took the opportunity to do some needed fix-ups, uh, painting, whatnot, to the building. Um, the Masonic Museum at Fort Edmonton Park, uh, through a sheer stroke of luck, uh, Fort Edmonton Park needed a complete utility upgrade as an entire park. So it was closed down. Uh, while all of the streets were being redone, the electrical power, the water sewer was being redone, whatnot. Wasn't a lot of work being done on the building itself, but a lot of the utilities in the neighborhood were being upgraded. So, yeah, I can say the same thing, uh, Windsor, you know, with being shut down, that there was a lot of work and repairs and stuff done on the building during that time, you know, it did provide a chance to at least get a lot of the things done that oftentimes mm -hmm. you get overlooked. Um, and that was great to see, you know, it's unfortunate 
that we weren't able to meet in person for so long. But if there is a silver lining, it's the, and this is true for, for everywhere, I think, the silver lining might be that a lot of buildings perhaps got some much needed renovation and, and TLC they weren't getting otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. So now Certainly that- after, Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, so now that we're, you know, uh, slowly but surely resuming our lodge activities, um, you know, how important is it for, uh, and, you know, as a professional in this field, I'm sure you can attest to it, you know, now that some of that work has been done and the renovations and the TLC, how important is it for masons and building operators to keep up with that stuff and not kind of let the little things pile up again in the buildings? Oh, you don't want to run, you don't want to run your building into the ground. I was just having a conversation a couple minutes ago with an accountant, uh, another uh, brethren who was saying that, you know, this building has kind of lived its life. It's run down. We need to, we probably need to move on. Um, you let a building get run down like that. It's a difficult save. Uh, it's a lot of money to put into a building from neglect and deferred maintenance to try to bring it back up to speed. If you keep a building well-maintained, the building will pay for itself. And it's a lot less expensive to do that than to try to build a brand new building, which is what my practice is founded on. That's what I do. Um, you know, I, a lot of my clients are not-for-profits. And uh, I, I can look at their building and have a pretty good idea of the health of that organization. Likewise, I can look at that organization and kind of guess what kind of building I'm going to be walking into. A well-organized and uh, well-run organization will usually have a very well-maintained building. And from a, uh, going back to the idea of the grants and national trust, um, you know, this is just an, an assumption I'm making. Uh, I'm pretty new to applying for grants, but you know, I suspect that if you're applying for grants and you can demonstrate that your building is, you know, well-maintained and well-operated and this, you know, grant isn't meant to save the building from collapse, but rather improve upon a, a strong existing foundation, you're far more likely to be successful than if you're applying for a grant for a building that is not well looked after or not taken care of. In general, yeah. Um, so yeah, so another good reason I should take care of your buildings is you want to be able to show that the money that a grant is investing is going to a property that um, will be around for another 100, 200, you know, 300 years, whatever it may be. 300 years like Freemasonry. Yeah, we made it 300 years, you know, why not 300 more at least? Exactly. Um, now, in a moment, we're going to share screen because you were kind enough to send me, um, well, a, a lot, and we can go through them, a ton of pictures uh, from Edmonton, uh, Edmonton Masonic Hall, Acacia Lodge, Acacia Hall, and I'm really looking forward to sharing those with, uh, with the viewers, with the people tuning into the podcast. Oh, but yeah. just, um, if you want to talk a bit before about you know, when you were approaching these Masonic buildings, when you were gathering the photographs, gathering information, um, you know, how excited were you to first be able to share them and, and what did the, the buildings think? And just how did you go with the process of gathering all this information to share? There is an awful lot of pride in being able to say that I belong to an organization that supports these buildings. Um, yeah. You know, if, if, if the lodges, if the lodge that I belong to all of a sudden moved to a reconstituted bingo hall, I'm not sure if I would want to bring any of my friends over there and perhaps hope that they may become brethren at some point. That's not the sort of thing that I would want to show them. I want to show them that we're an organization with deep roots that has held our deep roots, that knows where it's going and has a plan in place. We're not just about to cower and let ourselves fall. And that's what a strong building shows. Um, the Masonic Museum at Fort Edmonton Park has some really fabulous stories showing how Freemasonry has worked in Edmonton. Um, there was also a tour put together of buildings at Fort Edmonton Park. It's a historic park. Uh, buildings that had Masonic uh, connections to them. Um, how those connections helped build the city. 
looking at Freemasons Hall, which is an absolutely incredible building, I'm not sure how many other cities in Canada can boast a building that beautiful. Um, I, I, I was glad to see it up again. I was glad to see that it's getting use. I bumped into the brother who runs the food truck because he runs a ghost kitchen operation out of uh, the dining hall. Um, glad to see it was being put to use. Um, even had some talks with a friend of mine at the planning department at the city who was marveling over that building and the sorts of potential uses that could help support it. Looking at Acacia Hall and just how gung-ho the brethren are over there in maintaining this historic building. Um, one of the, the charter brethren of Acacia Lodge, which built Acacia Hall, was A.C. Rutherford, Alexander Cameron Rutherford, the first premier of the province of Alberta and the instigator of the University of Alberta. And that story is embodied in that building. That, that was really a great feeling. Well, I think that's a very good place to, to jump in. <laughs> oh, let's go. I've, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. Okay. okay. So let me just... Uh... All right, I'm going to... So as you're doing that, so Edmonton, there were initially two towns that formed what is now Edmonton. One was Strathcona, one was Edmonton. Strathcona, south of the River Valley, and Edmonton, north of the River Valley. They were competing towns, if you will. And when Alberta became a province, it all became Edmonton. North of the Valley got the provincial legislature, and south of the Valley got the University of Alberta. So Acacia is south of the Valley. Uh, like I mentioned, A.C. Rutherford was one of our founding brethren there. It's had many, many illustrious brethren, um, many who have toiled to build this building. Acacia Hall as a building, uh, the cornerstone was laid in 1929. And uh, 19, 1920s, that time period pops up a lot. Um, well, that's when the cornerstone was laid. So the building was actually built in the depths of the Depression. That's interesting. So that is. Now, Acacia Hall is small compared to Edmonton Freemasons Hall. It has one very beautiful lodge room. It has a festive board hall. Uh, it has a kitchen and storage lockers, whatnot. Um, it's located uh, just off of White Avenue in the Strathcona neighborhood. Um, it's a very well-maintained building. Well, I believe, uh, I don't know if you can see it, now I'm sharing the screen. I have uh, the first photo in the Dropbox, uh, I believe of Acacia Lodge, if I got this one right. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, the Thomas Risk Memorial Temple, Acacia Lodge number 11. Uh, so basically what we can do is I will you can talk about each each picture yep, and just let me know what they are because i'm looking at you at a small screen so i may not be able to see detail thomas risk actually rescued the building out of the depression and i believe he provided a lot of financial support to get the project done okay let's go on to we have a door knocker in the door knocker bob shaw yep the door knocker uh Again, um, there's a lot of Masonic hardware in all of the buildings that I photograph for you. Um, and the knocker, yep. Um, I've seen other lodges where the Tyler will actually knock with their hand, but they have an actual knocker here. Next up, we have uh, the lodge room. room. Yep. Can you uh, tell us about beautiful lodge room? It is. It is. So beautiful lodge room. Now, um, I've seen the lodge room at um, the Calgary Masonic Temple. Uh, that building, unfortunately, is, if it hasn't been sold yet, I know it's on the block to be sold. The, the tiling on the floor in Calgary was actually painted on the floor. Here in Edmonton, the lodge rooms, they're all tiled. So this is, this is tiled. Um, it's, uh, it's got uh, the Worshipful Master's chair in front. It's got about 14 seats, I think, for the Worshipful Master's entourage. Um, it has uh, quite a beautiful senior warden's chair, quite a beautiful junior warden's chair, and the chaplain even gets a chair. Um, I was chaplain in this lodge for quite some time. I always seem to annoy the junior warden because 
there was a very Scottish uh, heritage to the Freemasons here in Edmonton. So I would always be intent on wearing my uncle's kilt, which always used to spoof the uh, junior warden sitting opposite from me. But I don't think I displayed anything that's good. But uh, no, this is a room that has seen many, many lodges. Uh, I uh, did my uh, first and second um, uh, initiations here. Um, it holds great memories for me. And next up, we have another picture of the the lodge room. So, yep, it's a, a big of, lodge room. It it is. It's very uh, it's a beautiful lodge room. A lot of people, I'm sure, are going to be asking. Um, you know, a lot of men are going to ask what the G is for, what the altar is for, what the books are for. Well, I'd say if you want, got to fly in here. Uh, join, and you can find out. <laughs> Those are questions I had to keep fielding at Fort Edmonton Park. Yeah, okay. everybody who's done a tour has been asked uh, a question like that. Yep, yep. And we find ways to answer the questions. There we go. So it took a second. We now have... Here we go. So that's the, um, that's the senior warden's chair. And the senior warden's chair, the column capitals there are pomegranates. Now, the furniture, uh, the chair itself, um, do you know, is it original to the building? Was it, it is original. Or? No, I don't know who designed it. I can tell you who designed it over at Edmonton Freemasons Hall. This was a contractor who built this building. So I don't know if this was, for lack of better description, off-the-shelf Masonic furniture they used, uh, or if they actually had a trade in the lodge who built this furniture but it now, is custom for this building. Now the seating next to it, mm -hmm. where the, uh, you know, where, where the brethren will sit who aren't officers. Yep. Um, you know, it looks very similar to seating we've got in Windsor. Uh, a lot of ours came from uh, movie theaters. Yep, and that's where this came from. Seems like a pretty standard spot for Masonic lodges or temples to get their, uh, their seating. Yep, in this particular lodge, the seating is uh, clad in blue velvet. Let's go over to... Yep, so... Now so we are, this is still the, uh, the West. Yep, this is still the senior warden's chair. And you can see the pomegranate columns, okay. And that is over at the... the uh, I believe that's the master's chair. It is, nope, it is junior warden. I see You're right, screen. okay, that's the junior warden. Okay, looking at it at a small screen, I'm squinting. And we have next, uh, takes a second to load. So these, yep. uh, this is a very beautiful hall. I mean, I know it may be small by comparison. It still has a fairly major lodge room. Um, and I, I've noticed that the proportion of the room itself uh, in terms of width and length is modeled on the golden proportion, the golden section. Um, I do not believe the ceiling height has been modeled that way, but certainly everything else in that room works to proportion um there have been a couple times that we've had that lodge room open and i have been leading uh groups of of school students through and i'm able to give them geometry lessons on the floor because when you think of it that's who we as freemasons are that's how we started and a lot of our lessons are based on geometry absolutely well we you know i've, I've had uh, a couple NASA scientists on the podcast. Uh, I'm hoping to have another one very shortly. Um, and none of them were or are Freemasons, but you know, when, when discussing their, their their invitation to the show, it was. Um, I guess we're going to stop for a moment. You know, the reason I invited them on was, you know, you had one of the the projects. The Euclid project, one of them was the Galileo project, you know, the the way that, you know, our quote unquote ancient brethren or even the basin 300 years ago 
you know, recognize the value of geometry as a tool for understanding the world. Now it's being used by, by NASA scientists you know, as a tool to understand the universe. And it's all stemming from, you know, Euclid and, and these ancient geometricians. It's just, a, it, it's such a fascinating thing how, you know, uh, correct Freemasons were at least in that area on, on the value of understanding geometry. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Is, go ahead. Let's see some more photos. That's the most important. That's the, Oh, that is. That's what you're most excited about. All right. We got here. The altar. Yep. So the altar, um, individual lodges have their own cloth and uh, Bible and, and assorted things for the altar. Um, and again, there are storage lockers in back of Acacia Hall. It, uh, it, cool. sh it should be noted that, um, you know, Freemasonry to join, it does require a belief in a supreme being, but that supreme being is between the, the applicant or the Mason uh, and his, his faith, whatever it may be. So we can- I've seen, a, a, I've seen a variety of books on the altar at uh, Acacia. Um, certainly the Holy Bible, I've seen the, the Torah, I've seen the Quran, I've even seen the Book of Mormon over there. Yeah, uh, myself, I've never seen the Book of Mormon, but I have seen an eagle feather used for mm -hmm. a First Nations brother. Um, yep. So well, the Bible is there. Uh, other books are used if um, a Mason uh, professes, you know, whatever faith the Mason professes, you know, because um, there are a multitude of religions and faiths that uh, can and, and often do make up Masonic lodges and meet at Masonic temples. Certainly. So wait for this next picture to load up. Oh, one of these swords. Oh, the Tyler's swords. Oh, yeah. Acacia sadly, doesn't do any. Nothing's utility. Everything's fancy here. To say, sadly, these don't get used. It would be more fun. Lodge would be more interesting if they got used. But this is <laughs> standard uh, uh, design, I've noticed. Most swords look like this or similar. Uh, some have the chain, some don't. Uh, any, do you have any knowledge where these swords purchased with the building? Um, oh, I've no idea. Um, so Acacia Lodge um, was one of the first lodges um, held in the Edmonton area. Its history goes back to the 1880s when it had to um, charter under the Grand Lodge of Manitoba uh, because the Grand Lodge of Alberta, Alberta was not at the time. So this could have come from quite some time before this building. And next, there's usually, if any uh, Masons are watching this and you're curious, usually these swords have their, their sheath here. If, if there's any Masons watching, I'm sure that the lodge historian at Acacia would be thrilled to answer questions. I will see if I can't uh, throw his information down in the uh, description as well. Okay. So where is this located? I got the square compass. Looks like it's been printed in a piece of leather. Um, not sure where that particular one is. I know that we have a square and compass out on the sidewalk in front of the building. I'm not sure where that particular one is. That that's not familiar. It, it looks like uh, it's an imprint imprint on. A piece of leather, I'm guessing. And leather. Or... I, I'm, I'm even just going through my brain trying to think of where I could have seen leather at Acacia Hall, and that's not ringing through to me. But again, the level of craft that you're seeing, even in a simple building like this, is truly amazing. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree. And, you know, that's one of the fun things. Um, I have been, well, I, I was going to say, but. This is my point. You know, I, I'd like to think I've been through every nook and cranny and, um, you know, every part of the Windsor Masonic Temple. But the truth is there's, you know, if you really look and, and pay attention, there's so many things you can discover in any Masonic Temple, Masonic building. Like there's, yep. there's no end of history, no end of things hidden. It's a very, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, For all of the renovations and improvements that may have been done over the years, they may have hidden some things. 
So there's a lot of hidden history here too. I agree completely. All right, let's see if the next one loads up. While we're waiting for this one to load up, do you one one question I have? Because mm -hmm. I've I've discovered several at the Windsor Masonic Temple. Old glass bottles, kind of in the walls. Do you have any idea where those why those seem to be? Not I haven't heard of glass bottles in the walls. Um I mean, I've certainly have heard of glass bottles on site. Um, I know from my experience in Chicago, the most found glass bottle that salvage companies tend to find are bottles of bromo seltzer. Um, yeah, which apparently it had a, some sort of carcinic in it these days. We don't use it these days. Um, what we're looking at here is a photograph that one of the brethren, one of the past masters had uh, blown up and framed. It shows the lane of the cornerstone at Acacia Hall. So a couple of things to point out here, and I, I think we've got a photograph of the cornerstone of Edmonton Freemasons Hall coming up. Um, Masonic cornerstones, um, this is one of the secrets of the Brethren, but there is a specific method of, of laying a Masonic cornerstone, and it all deals with building a good building. If you build a good building, you can build a good man. The other thing to point out here, in 1929, Look at the men in this photo because they're all in their 30s and 40s. They look awfully weathered. These men were pioneers. They worked hard. And next up, we have a, another picture of the lodge room. Looks like from the uh, looks like it's from the east facing. Yes, west. it is. It's from the Worshipful Master's chair. And then another one from the, the opposite yep. side of the, the world. Yep, yep. Now, and here is our centennial so plaque. There is a centennial plaque commemorating the centennial of Acacia Lodge. Acacia Lodge built Acacia Hall. So, again, as I was mentioning before, uh, when Acacia Lodge chartered, it was under the Grand Lodge of Manitoba because Alberta was not a province at that point. Um, so this is this is pretty significant. Now, Acacia Lodge as a building just celebrated its 90th anniversary, and they were able to hold a public parade and whatnot uh, just prior to the pandemic. So that was good timing on their part. Well, to say it worked out well. Yep. And the temple panoramic should be popping up in a second. Yep. Um, now, interesting thing about Acacia Hall as a building, and we're going to see this at, at uh, Edmonton Freemasons Hall as well, is that the bricks that were used to build this building all came from the J.B. Little Brickyard. J.B. Little was a very prominent mason here in Edmonton. He was a Scottish orphan. Um, he was sent to Canada with his brother uh, to be under the uh, 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 guidance of their uncle. Uh, the two brothers set up brickyards, uh, one brickyard in Edmonton, another brickyard in Cochrane. And I'll go on more about the Little family later on. But again, a panorama photo of the lodge room. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, you bring that up. I'm just going to hit the stop share and we'll go to Edmonton next. Um, yep. You know, the fascinating thing about the the building of these temples was the, you know, how the the builders, how the temples, uh, Masonic buildings, went about acquiring the, um, the materials. If you look at, say, Detroit Masonic Temple, for example, they actually had to purchase uh, shares in a limestone. In a quarry. Yeah. yeah a quarry. I think well, it was yes. a quarry out of Illinois. Uh, no, I think it was probably Indiana. That's right. Um, Indiana. There's a huge, there's several huge quarries of limestone in Indiana. So Edmonton, uh, we're not close to a stone quarry at all. Calgary had the Pascapoo sandstone quarry. Um, sandstone isn't necessarily a great stone to work with. Um, Pascapoo sandstone is thought to be of, of a a lesser quality in terms of what you find for sandstone. Um, 
that particular quarry has been mined out, uh, Calgary City Hall, when it was restored. And those were mammoth sandstone blocks that were being used in the original construction of that building. So they haven't had a chance to erode yet. But for a lot of the repair stone, they actually went to a quarry in Poland. Um, now, since then, uh, a contractor that I know has opened up a quarry in Pitcher Butte, Alberta. Um, it's a small quarry, but it can, it's got enough stones that can be used for repairs. I'm using it on one of my projects right now. Very cool. Yeah, that's right. It was Indiana um, where, yep. where Detroit, uh, the Detroit Masonic Temple, they had to, you know, I guess they purchase shares and become part owner of the, the limestone quarry just to make sure they had sufficient amounts to complete yep. their building. You know, the, the, all the things that go into a building, you know, I think so many people, and, and I certainly did before the podcast, you kind of just imagine that somebody snaps their fingers and up it goes. No, no, no. So we well, as Masons, Masonry is built on stone masonry. Now you've just pointed out in order to get stone, sometimes you have to travel afar. Here in Edmonton, because we didn't have any uh, stone quarries nearby, we wound up using bricks because we had lots of terrace clay. We had lots of water from the North Saskatchewan River and we had a fuel source, that being local coal. Now this building is the recreation of the 1903 uh, Masonic Hall. This is a recreation that was built at Fort Edmonton Park. The park just opened, reopened this year. This building has been around for quite, for what, I believe it was built in the 1980s. We'll come up to the commemoration plaque here in a bit because it was built by uh, an effort put forth by the Ionic Club. The Ionic Club, every brother who is a member of the um, uh, of, of Edmonton Lodge 7 and Eastgate Lodge 192 is a member of the Ionic Club, which is a registered charity. And we go about raising funds for various initiatives around town. One of the first projects of the Ionic Club was to build this recreation of Edmonton Masonic Hall uh, at Fort Edmonton Park. So this building, the Masonic Hall was on the second floor when it was originally built. The ground floor had a variety of uses. One of those uses actually was uh, the cigar factory, the Edmonton Cigar Factory. Uh, when the Brethren at Acacia Hall met with me to hand over the photos that I showed to you, that I shared with you, their comment was that what they would really like to do, because they have an empty space facing the street at Acacia Hall, if the government of Alberta ever relaxed uh, indoor smoking guidelines, they would like to organize, uh, reorganize the Edmonton Cigar Factory to be in one of the rooms at Acacia Hall. I'm sure many uh, <laughs> would like to have one of those uh, at their buildings. Uh, so we have here. The so we have the stones at, uh, yep, at uh, Edmonton Masonic Hall. And, uh, you know, people were asking me about this. And I, I, I was saying what we say in, in uh, Lodge. You know, we bring in men as, as rough cut stone and, and uh, through discipline, they can turn into fine cut ashlers. Sometimes I wonder what I would be as a rough cut stone, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with what I am for now. Beautiful lodge. This room. is the yeah. lodge room. Okay. Uh, this is where I was raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason. It is a functioning lodge room. And lodges in Edmonton can rent this on a daily basis. So when I, I initiated in Acacia Lodge, which is a Canadian right lodge, I went over to Edmonton Lodge, which is a, a York right lodge. But initiating in the Canadian right, no, uh, it happened here in this room. This room as a recreation, the lights are electric. That never would have been in the original. Uh, we probably would have had gas lights. Um, fairly dim, and I doubt if we would have had as many lights as you're seeing here. I know that when this room gets used, it tends to have a lot of candles. And you can see the star and the crescent moon on the wall, and that's in sunlight. So if this room is dark, those are the only illuminated things you see. So this photo shows the Edmonton Cigar Factory, and this is from one of the displays. There's a variety of displays and exhibits at the Masonic Museum. This is one showing the cigar factory. 
Um, many of the other exhibits and displays are regalia from various officers from many of the lodges around Edmonton, um, showing their role in their lodge, explaining what the regalia is and its function. Uh, sometimes the regalia is parked at a certain spot in that lodge room or out in the ante room. And again, its position and why it is there is also explained in a way that we can explain it to lay folks. This is the plaque that tells the story of building this particular building at Fort Edmonton Park and how funds were raised through the Ionic Club and how this building, when it was original, would have uh, stood on 102nd Street in downtown in Edmonton. Uh, if you know anything about Edmonton, it's roughly, roughly the same area where the Anglican Cathedral and what used to be the Salvation Army uh, Citadel, now the Stardust Ballroom is. And yeah, it's a difficult elevation to photograph uh, because of the direction it faces. It faces north and west. So you have to catch it in late afternoon sun. So it's a hard one to photograph. Uh, but uh, again, every lodge in Edmonton is asked to uh, uh, submit the names of various men who will uh, staff the museum for one day in the summer. So there's always someone there. Uh, to answer questions. It's open to the public. And these days on the ground floor is a concession stand. Um, some years ago, we held Edmonton Masonic Day. And we had this great procession that came through the park. We had pipers and we had a procession of Freemasons and all the concordant bodies. And we met at this location outside uh, the Masonic Museum. I'm not sharing any photographs with you because everything is in shade. You can't make anything out. Just too bad. So the, um, the hall itself, you said it is staffed. Uh, like, what is the actual, um, you said it's staffed in the summer. Like, do you have the, for, for this year, do you know the, yep. the last day it's open to the public? And then does it, in fall and winter and, and spring, get closed down again? It'll be closed down again in the off season. I believe the last day that the museum is staffed is Labor Day. Um, so here in Edmonton, you tend to find uh, museums like this are open between Victoria Day and Labor Day. So I, I staffed last Saturday. That was, that was my time. Um, and there was another brother from Edmonton Lodge there as well. And do you do, um, or does the Masonic Hall uh, take walk-ins only, or can people book tours? Uh, um, it's pretty informal. So, you know, I've, I've, I've been there when school groups have come through um, and it's, it's usually just fine. The idea of having to go in a building and walk up a stairway to the second floor, um, it's really not inviting as a museum. So we have a sandwich board out front that will direct people, but still it doesn't get really big crowds. When I was there last Saturday, it, uh, happened just after a furious rainstorm we had and we we're forever trying to sweep mud off the floor i think every masonic temple and hall has experienced something like that at some point <laughs> yep now this so is that to, uh, tour of fort edmonton park. park yeah so there's a there's many many different buildings in the park that have masonic connections and it says an awful lot about freemasonry and our role in building the city. So looking at various ones. Now, I, I just completed a project where I was working with another group of architects to repair buildings here uh, while the park was closed down. The Ottawell House, uh, Worshipful Master Ottawell, um, a prominent uh, a member of Edmonton Society, uh, was the Worshipful Master of Acacia Lodge. Um, I mentioned the JB Little Brickyard. That is here as well. I believe the Ramsey Greenhouse also has Masonic connections. There are, aside from the, the Masonic Hall, there are just so many different sites and organizations here that show the sort of Masonic connections. Um, there is a, an aircraft hangar here, and there's not an airstrip here, so you can't land planes. But the aircraft hangar, that's built in memory of WAP May. Uh, we all know the uh, 
story of the Red Baron, uh, since glorified in the song Snoopy and the Red Baron. Well, the aviator who was sent as bait, if you will, for the Red Baron to chase, that was Wap May. And Wap, likewise, was a brother of Acacia Hall. Uh, WAP was uh, very instrumental in setting up what was Blatchford Field or the industrial airport in Edmonton. Um, so the aircraft hangar here um, is a tribute to WAP May. And, you know, we can, I think we can probably post those two pages from the guide to Fort Edmonton Park uh, as a still. Um, this is a commemorative plaque that tells of um, uh, Edmonton Lodge number seven, which was instrumental in providing some funds to the creation of Fort Edmonton Park. And together with Eastgate Lodge 192, we raised funds through the Ionic Club uh, to uh, put together various projects, including building the Masonic Hall. So I think that was really quite, uh, quite the endeavor that we did. I'm quite proud of that. I'm quite proud to say I belong to an organization with the foresight to do that. And what else we have coming up here? More about the, yep. the tour book, just different buildings. Yeah, the tour book, yeah. I may have sent the tour book to you in different program formats in PDF and PowerPoint. So there could be a couple of those here, but definitely let's try to post those because that's quite the story. I can post them on uh, social media. Um, there we go. Sure. You know, I've got my, my Instagram pages, which I've talked about uh, in a few emails where I'm trying to, to celebrate uh, and I discover, you know, or if I document any Masonic buildings, I discover that I've had the pleasure of visiting. Some of them I get to, I have one that's dedicated just to the exteriors and one that's dedicated to the interiors. I try to, whenever I visit a Masonic temple. And I'm, I'm going to be submitting some of these photos to those sites. Um, Fort Edmonton Park, to get to the Masonic Hall, it's kind of a trek, even if you do take the streetcar. So I, I sent those photos to you after my, my tour of duty at the uh, Masonic Hall, and it occurred to me afterwards I really should have taken more, so I wasn't able to get back into the park to take more photos. I'll see if I can do it next weekend, maybe. Um, By all and means. for, yeah, Acacia Hall has got all sorts of banners up outside celebrating the Fringe Festival. So I'll have to wait till those banners come down before I send some exterior shots of Acacia. Or maybe, you know, knock on wood, I can make my way to, uh, uh, you know, being fully vaccinated, being able to travel, I can make my way to, uh, to Alberta, to Edmonton, and then get to see some of these well, there you go. Masonic you know, buildings. there's a whole host of Masonic halls in little towns throughout Alberta. Now, I haven't been to the real small ones. I know that here in the Edmonton area, uh, there are lodge halls in St. Albert, in Leduc, in Spruce Grove, and uh, in um, Stony Plain. Um, what was the historic uh, Masonic hall in Fort Saskatchewan, I believe is... I don't think it's being used as a Masonic Hall anymore. But when you get out into some of the outlying areas, it, it, it's amazing to see the number of Masonic Halls that are out there and other organizations too. Uh, here in Edmonton, uh, what caught my eye, it was next to a school I was doing work on, the Oddfellows Hall. And for some reason, it wasn't included in the heritage inventory. I believe that organization has since folded its presence in Edmonton. But beautiful little building and uh, once I was asked to take a look at the Orange Hall from the Orange Men. Now this was fascinating. I don't know how much of this I'm allowed to say but looking at how they work and how we work it almost seems similar except where they are. That is one of those 1880s buildings that was built without electricity, without plumbing. It probably had an outhouse so they've added this onto it later on but it's well kept. It's brilliantly orange uh, it's front and center in the middle of the Fringe Theater, Theater Fest right now. And for the longest of times, it was on Friday nights hosting the Sugar Swing Dance Club because it had a sprung dance floor as its floor. The, uh, yeah, so many of these uh, civic uh, groups um, are purposefully or 
kind of just by os osmosis, kind of uh, modeled on Masonic-esque principles. And, and just because, I mean, during that big explosion in the 20s of civic groups and organizations, uh, and even a little bit before then, you know, they, they were all kind of, Freemasonry was, really was kind of the first civic organization of that nature. And so a lot yep. of things became modeled on it and people spun off and created their own groups, but they took Masonic practices with them. Um, you know, it, and then obviously the, as you talked about, you know, the, the architecture uh, also kind of spread, you know, the, the idea of, of a civic group having its own building um, mm -hmm. in the community as opposed to renting out space. You know, the Masons for the longest time obviously rented out space, but once they started trying to create and, and maintain their own building, you saw a lot of other civic groups, Oddfellows, Orangemen, uh, Rotary, um, 4-H in the States doing the same type of thing. What will be interesting in the post-pandemic period is that we're suddenly beginning to learn to live without buildings. Um, many employers, um, office workers, are allowing their employees to work off-site virtually. I know that here in Canada, the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, which blew my mind, suddenly they don't have an office in Ottawa anymore because all of their staff work virtually off-site. Um, so here we have buildings. We have organizations that own buildings. When those buildings were built 100 years ago, and this certainly rings true for Freemasonry, the role of men in families was very different. And men tended to have time to do things like Freemasonry. Times have changed. How are we adapting to that? And as you mentioned, other organizations in fabulous buildings, from my time in Chicago, uh, apparently, I may have been one of the last people to have uh, closed out the pool at the Chicago Athletic Association before the, the, their clubhouse went bankrupt. Uh, it's a long story. We won't get into it here. But um, Masonically, a similar building in Chicago was the old Medina Athletic Club built by the Shrine. Now, that building also folded in the middle of the 30s. It's now the uh, Intercontinental Hotel. It's a fabulous place. Like, if you ever go there, you need to go to King Arthur's Ballroom. It's pretty cool. I love yes. Chicago. I'll check it out for sure. I'll give you a list. Okay. You know, I uh, looking uh, behind you at your bookcase, I believe I see, um, I can't think of the title of it now, but William Moore's book uh, on Masonic temples. I had him on my podcast, which is why I think of it. To your, oh, yeah, you're pointing close to it. I think that's William Moore's book. No, it's not. This yeah. it's a history of architecture by Sir Bannister Fletcher. Oh, well, never mind. It not looks quite. Similar. Not quite. <laughs> well, you check out a little more. Uh, he talked. He talked about that though. The kind of the the nature of the, the changing of society in the 1920s and how yep. it um, how it was very. Uh, Productive. That, that's the challenge that we have as Freemasons today is how do we find relevance as an organization and for these fabulous buildings that we built, how do we find relevance and use for those in our communities? Because that map of Fort Edmonton Park was really telling the sort of relevance that we had as an organization and as men in the communities that we, we settled in. So what sort of relevance are we having now? That's our challenge. Do you think people want to be free people, Freemasons? Do you think that there's still a desire for relevance? Or it seems more and more that people are, are desiring almost to, to be withdrawn from... Pastiche. I worry about that. Decided. I like really people, do. Yeah. People are less interested in... Because I agree with you, uh, you know, certainly the reason I got involved with Freemasonry and kind of my understanding of it as somebody who grew up, you know, in a very, my dad was a Freemason, both my grandfathers, great grandfathers, uh, you, you, my understanding of Freemasonry was that it was primarily a community organization. It was a place mm -hmm. you went for Christmas parties and, mm -hmm. you know, men joined the Masons and, and, 
you know, fathers joined the Masons and moms joined the PTA and everybody kind of joined these groups to be relevant and, and helpful to their communities. Now it seems, and you were seeing it, people are almost distrustful of community institutions and community in general. And Oh, yeah. The, there were a lot of, of questions that came through when I was at Fort Edmonton Park asking really strange, really out there sort of questions and wanting to try to to make us be some sort of a cult or or try to find some sort of weirdness about us. Oh, no. You know, um, no. Um, Do you think that that comes from media or just that general kind of distrust? It comes from media. I mean, we're certainly seeing an awful lot of of um, sensationalization in media. Now, this is interesting. We're seeing a lot of sensationalization in television media and in social media. But back in the day, 100 years ago, when we were building those, those buildings, newspapers, there were far more newspapers than there are now. Remember the, the classic newsboy, you know, extra, extra read all about it, standing on the street corner hawking newspapers. They were every bit as sensational as what we're seeing today. Perhaps it's that we have lost the ability to think. I hope that's not the case. Well, you know, I, this is probably going a bit off topic, but it's. We've gone off topic. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, one, one thing I've, I've thought more and more, uh, uh, and I'm beginning to, to suspect is that the, you know, it, it sounds funny to say, but the Vietnam war, and I recognize we're Canadian, but nonetheless, I think, People don't, we don't recognize the, what the Vietnam War did in that time period did to Freemasonry, because if you look at the two most recent boom periods, the last two boom periods, it was the 1920s and 1950s, both of which membership was primarily, and this is in the States as well as Canada, membership mm -hmm. was primarily driven by returning veterans. Um, they went, you know, they, they went overseas, um, then coming back, part of it was, uh, I think, a desire to maintain this sense of brotherhood and camaraderie that they felt overseas, which, you know, you're, you're risking your life for the person next to you and, and him for you. You're going to develop some pretty strong feelings of brotherhood and a desire to continue those. But I also think part of it was you know, they went overseas and they were sacrificing themselves uh, for belief in their country, for belief in, you know, they, they, they believed and it was, you know, just causes. So they came back, they wanted to continue to support their communities. Joining the Masons was a continuation of supporting the communities in the same way joining the military was support for country. You come back, you, you join the Masons, you're still supporting your country. But, you know, what you see in the 60s and 70s in Vietnam is, is I think you didn't see another boom period. You didn't see veterans returning in the States and joining Freemasonry and Great Droves. And I think in a lot of cases, it's because you start to see this distrust in, in community institutions, in government. Um, certainly, you know, uh, the, I think that was a time period where people started to, to question Authority institutions, authority in general, and, yeah. and Freemasons was a, an authoritative body, not a formal one, but informally, it was one of the pillars of community. Uh, mm -hmm. People start to question that. I think we still have the struggle of people are questioning, uh, not so much authority, though it could be, but more just questioning community institutions in general, um, and much preferring to kind of be separate from institutions and groups as opposed to being a part of that. Distrust was a word that you mentioned, and that's what was going through my brain uh, when I was trying hard not to interrupt you there. Yes, distrust. But um, no, um, there was an awful lot of distrust in society and organizations, uh, a variety of organizations during the Vietnam War. Um, if we have Masons, we as Masons are strong. Our values will be beyond reproach. Anyone can challenge us, and our, our foundations will be every bit as strong as those stones that we build our temples from, okay? 
I'm not sure if we held true to that. I think that we may suddenly have seen ourselves more as a social organization and said, what's our values? What is it that we go to lodge for? And I think that's a serious question that we should probably start asking ourselves. I agree completely. And certainly any uh, uh, Masons who are watching this, by all means, throw a comment in as to, to what you think the answer is, because it's fascinating. Tell you, tell you what, we'll do two different broad podcasts out of this. One will be showing photographs of all the buildings, and then the other one will be uh, this, this last bit. So it'll work well. Okay. I can't edit that. This is all just <laughs> Sure you can. Sure you can. You do it through iMovie on uh, on your cell phone. Anyway. Too lazy to do that. This is all going up at once. Though it's interesting, you know, the that's I think it's a good place to end it with, with your thoughts on this is you well, know we still how, haven't seen Edmonton Freemasons Hall. That's our next podcast. Yes, we still have that one to do. That's the next one to do for sure, because you sent me those pictures and they're they're amazing. Um, I'll see the, if I can get photos without glare. I, no, some of them were the more photos, the better. But I enjoyed looking through all of the. Not only that, hey. but you also sent me some links, which I'll put in the description. Um, hey. At our last hey. conversation, you sent me some links about Chicago, which I'll put in the description. I think I put them in the description for your original yep. interview. Yep. You know, the thing I like about this podcast and like long form podcasting in general is. You know, when you're talking for, I think this is about an hour we've been talking for, you know, the way you can develop connections and conversation. Like, I think so many Masons have this idea, and you see it in their, their Masonic career, where they'll, they can have uh, 10, 20, 30 years being a Freemason, but they never spend, you know, all their focus is on the ritual work. They never spend any time thinking about the history or maintenance of mm -hmm. buildings in which they are a member of, or there are other people who may be on a temple board uh, and their focus is on that, but they never stop to think about the ritual work or attend meetings. They're just paying bills. Uh, it's, you know, it's just, it's all connected. And that's, I think what you brought up with this, with this podcast in particular is how you can't separate one from the other. You know, it's, it's the building and it's the people and it's the maintenance and it's the ritual and it's everything and it's society and how society treats us and how we interact with society. It's all it connects to each other and they all have to be considered. Yep. So now I'm looking.